I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. If we're really going to tackle this big and complex social problem, we can't just be looking at it from a once a year perspective, that we need to really invest in providing resources and tools 365 days a year and to embed ourselves in the community, not just be you know, this thing that just happens around the reservation once a year. In 2014, Heather Fleming, Jessica Stago, and Natasha Hale launched a one-day event on the Navajo Reservation to help the community learn about entrepreneurship. With the hope that at least five people would show up, the team was absolutely shocked to see more than 80 people attend their first event. Of course, they knew they were onto something, and one of their funders encouraged them to transition from a one-day event to a full-scale organization that would help create a space for Native entrepreneurs and community members to access infrastructure, expertise, and support, everything that they would need to build a small business. And thus, Change Labs, the organization, was born. On this episode, Heather walks us through how she moved from a one-day event to a full-scale organization, how she's navigated feeling like an outsider at times, and why business is so critical to sparking social change. Well, before Change Labs, I was living in San Francisco. I had moved there after high school to go to college. I went to Stanford and I studied product design there. And um, I studied product design because I, I was, that's a whole narrative that I won't get into right now. So maybe I'll leave that for later, but studied product design and I ended up as a design consultant in the Bay Area um, for initially six years. I worked for a boutique firm in Mountain View and then was really frustrated by that experience. N- not the place or not the work or not the people, but just um, my heart was always in, I wanted to go home and do stuff back on the reservation, but I couldn't figure out how to make that connection between product design and, um, and tribal communities. So um, my, my next trajectory then in the Bay Area was I started a company called Catapult Design. And Catapult was a product and service design firm that worked in underserved, low-income communities. So I think the closest of what you can get to most tribal communities, but all of our clients were based in developing nations around the world. So instead of going back home, I ended up in places like India and East Africa, uh, working with communities to create new products, new market-based solutions that... um, the goal was to enable people to lift themselves out of poverty. Mm. And you, you mentioned home a couple times now. Uh, what? It, where is home and where did you grow up? Yeah, well, I was born in Tuba City, Arizona, which is where Change Labs is based. And then shortly after I was born, my parents moved to a little 
tiny New Mexico town called Vanderwagen, New Mexico, population 300. And <laughs> nice. that's, yeah, our house was, was probably a mile off of the Navajo Nation, Chichilta chapter. So I technically grew up off the res, but, um, you know, Vanderwagen is a place where you can, you have electricity access, but we had a well for, for water service and um, all that good stuff. But I, um, so I, by no means, I always want to clarify that when people say that, or when people hear that I'm from the res or I'm Navajo, they, they, it's easy to assume that I grew up a true res life, which without water and electricity and, and all the modern goods, but I had those things. And because I did, I feel like that was, that was what, um, made it more apparent to me, I suppose, that, that there was even a difference. So the fact that you could live just a few feet from the reservation and have access to modern amenities, but if you lived on the reservation, then chances were likely that you wouldn't have those amenities. And something was very weird there, how there was just kind of this invisible boundary between on and off res. That just Even if like it totally depended on which side you were on. Even if you were Navajo on one side or the other side, that that invisible boundary could make such a difference in your life. I had friends in, in elementary school, I remember, who didn't have electricity. And so they had a hard time doing their homework after dark. And I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, honestly, because I didn't live that life. But Imagine that if you're trying to go to school, but every morning you had to go get water or you couldn't do your homework after a certain time period because it just got too dark outside. It's just something is wrong there. Absolutely. Um, And so then this idea for change labs comes about. And I'm curious if you can talk to us a little bit about that and how that kind of helps to address some of the problem that you were just talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll give you a little bit of the context behind change labs. I created it with with um, two of my colleagues, Jessica Stego and Natasha Hale, back in 2013. And um, we were all introduced through a mutual friend of ours because Jessica and Natasha had created the first virtual business incubator on Navajo. It was called the Native American Business Incubator Network. And around the same time, I had received my first grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to um, through catapult design the company that i had created in san francisco to um to do some work back home and through through previous conversations i had i had kind of honed in on entrepreneurship and innovation as as where i wanted to focus my efforts back on navajo because initially i had tried to go back home to get work through catapult and it became quickly apparent to me through people older and wiser than myself that, you know, there's a, it it would be hard for me to find organizations to work with back home because there's very few entrepreneurs. And um, so of course the questions became to, well, why are there very few entrepreneurs? And it got back to how caustic the business environment is back on Navajo. And um, through my work with Catapult, I had, I had seen firsthand what, social the the effect of social entrepreneurship in communities and how you know individuals can pursue these innovative business models and innovative technologies to to drive change in their communities you know like 
creating solar water kiosks and pay-as-you-go um, solar energy systems. Um, all of these cool models and ideas to, to reach households where um, money is of utmost importance. And I wondered, like, why isn't that happening back home on the res? I mean, there's, there's all these great ideas and models that exist that are working in other parts of the world within similar, in, uh, similar environments that we have back on Navajo, but you just don't see that innovation happening. And it was kind of shown to me how difficult it is to create a business. And I thought, you know, what a shame because, because, um, because, 50% of households not having running water should just not exist in 2019, much less 2000. Um, and if, if the thing that's holding it back is, you know, it's too difficult for people to create businesses and to access loans, then something needs to change. So myself, Natasha, and Jessica created Change Labs initially to build a community of Native American entrepreneurs who were home on the reservation and were trying to use business as a vehicle for social change. And um, we ran that, we ran Change Labs as an event for about four years before it was actually one of our funders who kept pushing us saying, you know, think, think bigger picture, think about where you want this to go, think about the real change that you want to make and um, couple that to a, a fabulous evaluation firm that we were working with who was giving us honest feedback about, you know, the, the impact you can have with events and how initially it's great for building momentum and building community. But from there, you know, we needed, we did need to think bigger. We need, did need to think about, you know, do events solve the infrastructure challenge? Do events solve the um, human capital challenges? Do events um, increase social agency on the Navajo Nation? And, and at the end of the day, we couldn't say that, yes, by running Change Labs once a year that we were affecting all those things. So um, 2000, late 2017, 2018 was, was kind of a deep thinking year for the three of us. And we decided, you know, if we're really gonna, if we're really gonna tackle this big and complex social problem, we can't just be looking at it from a once-a-year perspective. That we need to really invest in providing resources and tools 365 days a year, and to embed ourselves in the community, not just be you know this thing that just happens around the reservation once a year. And so, Change Labs was born in um, late 2018, where we decided to just plant our stake in the ground and say, you know, this is no longer an event. It's an official organization and we're dedicated to providing workspace, resources, tools, and knowledge to entrepreneurs on, on the reservations in the Southwest and will be accessible 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Wow. So how, how have you actually been able to make that a reality? Yeah, I know you said that <laughs> you have a funder that was kind of pushing you. So I assume there's uh, some fundraising involved in this. But what else has gone into making that a reality? Yeah, I, I do. I have to give a lot of credit to that funder because he's been, he's been on this journey with us for so long and, and pushing us. And, and 
he's from a, a tribe in New Mexico, so he totally gets on a on an inherent level what the challenges that we're facing, and and he understands the problem and he understands the need, and I appreciate that so much. So, so really, he he came to the table as an anchor funder, and then I think once you have that support, like long term, in this case, a three year commitment, um, it becomes a little bit easier for other funders to to buy into that. It de-risks our idea. Um, and I should say, you know, I don't want to give it credit all to them, but, but we, we've had other funders along that four-year journey who are interested in what we're doing and just waiting for us to pitch them on, on this bigger vision. So once we had it, it was about going back to them and saying, this is what we've decided to do and here's why. And here's all the data that we've collected over four years that, that validates why this is why this is needed and why and why now and at the end of that year of 2018 we were able to get 2.1 million in commitments and that was more than enough to to get us started so here we are <laughs> so I have to ask, I mean, kind of moving from the once a year model to an actual organization that's up and thriving with 2.1 million in funding, was there any fear involved in kind of moving from one time a year to a full-time situation? Absolutely not. You know, the, the good thing I would say about having, so Natasha is no longer on our team. She's, she's, um, she actually works for our prior previous funder now, <laughs> which is also great in some ways because now we have one of our primary stakeholders is a former team member. Um, but Jessica and I, I mean, Jessica is a seasoned entrepreneur and, and I don't know if I would consider myself a seasoned entrepreneur, but I know what it, what it is to, to create a business having created Catapult. And I couple that to the fact that, you know, she and I grew up not too far from each other back in the Southwest. And we've just been kind of living this problem our entire lives, I would say. So for us, or I should say for Jessica, she's devoted her whole career to this issue. So for her, this is just the natural next step that she's always wanted to take. So she's been ready for a very long time. And for me, um, this is when I created Catapult, I had nothing. I had, I mean, the first year Catapult was running, I, I didn't even take a salary. And the second year, I think I paid myself like $1,000 a month or something like that. So it almost feels less risk. In creating this, there was money right off the bat. And, you know, I can start off with a normal salary and with staff and resources. And, I, and yes, I have to build something, but I have capacity. So I actually feel like... I don't want to say that there's no risk, but, um, but our funders have made it easy for us to take risks and to do this in the way that we want to do it. And so in, in that regard, I'm not really scared. And I don't think Jessica is either. Hmm. Yay. Fearless entrepreneurship. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what does Change Labs look like today? What is the, the current iteration of this organization? Yeah, well, we we have a baby co-working space right now, and it's free to the community. It's in Tuba City, and it's kind of a mini version of what we're we're trying to establish by the end of this year, which is a much larger, you know, four thousand square foot space that has 
all of the amenities that you typically find in an urban setting. Um, but we have some challenges facing us for sure. And we, we knew this going in and, and the fact that we're offering things for free this year is, is, is our way of trying to address some of those challenges. Like, um, you know, nobody, not very many people on the reservation know what co-working is. So even by calling it a co-working space, I think we're, we're running into obstacles, people who, who don't, aren't familiar with that term. And, um, so we, we're trying to now trying to think of different ways to talk about what it is that we're trying to do. Um, there's also, there's also a little bit of a stigma against business and entrepreneurship, particularly on Navajo. Like we don't have a word in our language for either of those terms. And there's also a historical context that we're running up against as well. When, when people think about business owners or entrepreneurs, they think about white people in suits. They think about being taken advantage of by white traders. And for that reason, lots of people don't really identify with either of those terms, even though we have so much entrepreneurial activity on Navajo. It's, it's probably half, if not more, of the way that people make money on the reservation through, informally, I would say, through flea markets, through roadside vending. Um, if you go up to any of those people, though, if you're driving through the reservation and you, you pull off the side of the road to buy some fry bread or to, to buy jewelry, if you ask those people, you know, how long have you been in business? Um, it's likely that people will say, well, I don't, I don't really have a business. And so if I question them on that and I say, well, you're creating a product, like you're making your fry bread in the morning and you're selling it and people are paying you money. Isn't, isn't that a business? And they don't really see it that way. You're like, no, I don't really run a business. I just hmm. sell fry bread. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's, it's something that we're, we're constantly trying to navigate in, in turning, turning these concepts of business and entrepreneurship. First off, trying to find a word in our language that represents those terms in a positive way. But then also instilling a sense of pride in that fact, too, that, that our resilience as people has been built off of our ability to <laughs> essentially run businesses, to, to sell that fry bread, to bead those bracelets, to chop that wood, to sell that coal. I mean, that's what, that's what pays for our way of life. That's what enables people to feed their families. And there's good in that. And it doesn't have to be necessarily, or you don't have to, um, how do I say this? You're not white. If you decide to sell coal or decide to, you know, put a stake in the ground, I'm a small business or I'm an entrepreneur. So how do you, I mean, in addition to being a co-working <laughs> space, you're also a, a business incubator. How are you going to be combating this moving forward? Oh, well, um, one, there's a few things that we're trying to do. One, in just, in just trying to establish and build our community of entrepreneurs, where we're trying to, to highlight and bring attention to role models. You know, people who are, people who, who are proud to be business owners or they're doing good in the community. Like one that immediately comes to mind is Carlos Deal. He runs a, a food truck in Tuba City. And he's a trained sushi chef. And so he puts his own spin on like Navajo Japanese fusion. But he created his business because he, 
he wanted to see more healthy food options on the reservation. And he's totally right in that. One of our tribal council delegates, Amber Crotty, once shared in a, in a presentation that the number one food being sold in our grocery stores and sea stores is, is hot Cheetos. And how there's just a prevalence of, of junk food on the Navajo Nation when historically, you know, we, we, our native foods had much healthier options and we've kind of detracted from that um, in favor of McDonald's and hot Cheetos. So Carlos is trying to combat that with his, his Navajo Japanese food truck. And I don't, I don't even know if he sees himself necessarily as an entrepreneur or small business owner. I suspect that he does, but so we're trying to showcase people like that who, who, um, who see it, a social challenge in the community and they have a solution and they, they have a wonderful product and service that they have to offer. And, you know, why shouldn't our community be supporting that? The other thing that we do is um, this year we launched an artist residency program. So it's a one year program for a native American visual artist. And in exchange for a living stipend, studio space, and $5,000 in art supplies, and also business incubation, their primary task with us is to create public artwork that illustrates the ties between entrepreneurship and Native American identity. I just don't feel like, like there's so much art in Native communities, but a lot of it is traditional art, which is great, but um, I think it's time to rethink what it means to be a Native American entrepreneur and who better to to help illustrate and communicate that vision than some of our own artists who are also our inherent Native American entrepreneurs. They're creating traditional crafts and, and they sell it. Um, they too don't necessarily see themselves as small businesses or entrepreneurs. They see themselves as artists and, and that's true, but um, by definition, they are, they are also entrepreneurs. So I'm curious for you, uh, what has been one of the best moments on this journey so far? <laughs> it was probably the first change labs that we did because mm. we were expecting five people to come, literally, because Jessica and Tosh had been, they'd been running the, the business incubator then for a little under a year. So they've been out, you know, trying to recruit, trying to advertise, trying to get people to enroll. and it was a struggle for them. So when we, we teamed up to host Change Labs, we were all trying to set our expectations. And like, if we get five people, we'll be so excited. And, um, and 80 people showed up. And we had room <laughs> for 80. So we sold out that first year. It was held at a, in a library <laughs> at Danette College. Um, so that was the first signal that we got that people were receptive to this idea that there was interest in the topics that we were presenting and that there was an actual community of both young people as well as people who, who thought like, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, yeah, I'm a small business and I wanna make it better. Um, that there was an actual audience that we could cater to and create services for. That was huge for us, it was very validating. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so on the converse side, uh, what has been one of the most challenging moments and how did you get over it? 
Oh, gosh. Well, my challenges are mostly personal. It's so I'm half Navajo and I, as I mentioned, I grew up just off the reservation. I was on the res all the time because my, my mother's family is there and I basically grew up with all of my cousins and whatnot. Um, but there, I, I don't live on the reservation now. I live in Denver. And so I commute to our space in Tuba City through a wonderful United flight <laughs> that connects <laughs> me to Flagstaff, Arizona. But there's, there is a perception, I don't want to say by everybody, but by a lot of people on the reservation that if you're, if you're half or if you don't live here, then you don't, your say isn't as valid as someone who grew up there or um, who grew up in traditional way, all those things that I don't have. And I also don't speak Navajo. It's not my first tongue. So that, that is huge on the reservation as well. So it's hard for me to go to a community where we're trying, that we're trying to serve. And um, they have chapter meetings every month. So chapters are, are basically our local forms of governance. There's a hundred something chapters around the Navajo nation and the, the agency on, on Navajo that we serve Western agency has 18 chapters. And so change labs is often trying to, to do outreach within those 18 chapters to make sure that people in the community know about our services and, and what we can offer them. But at chapter meetings, you know, they, they're, <laughs> if you come in and you're Navajo, they expect you to speak Navajo at those meetings. And if you can't, or you don't, you're, you're, it's, it's like they won't even let you present or you're, you're not allowed to speak or you're, you're, you have to bring in somebody who can. So there's this, there's just this barrier that I'm constantly facing as being an outsider. And something I struggle with because I identify as native because I, I feel like that is my home and that's who, that's the family that I grew up with. But at the same time, I feel like I'm also constantly being told by our own communities that I don't qualify. Mm. So that's just, you know, kind of a personal thing that I'm constantly clashing with. And uh, my colleagues, Jessica and Natasha always tell me that I'm overthinking it, but it's hard when you're at those meetings and people in, around you are talking in Navajo critically about what you're doing, but you can't understand them because there's that barrier between you and your own people. Thank you for sharing that. I, I can't imagine what that would feel like. And I'm curious if there's been any thing that you've kind of lessons that you've pulled from that in terms of approaching uh, when you, when you do feel like an outsider, what do you do? Well, I, I think some podcast or some talk I was listening to online, that, so, some saying that I've heard before, but now I've really started to take it to heart is to take all of those things that you're sensitive about and think about how it actually is your superpower, how it makes you stronger. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to reframe it as that, like, yes, I, I'm probably not the one who's going to be at the chapter meetings, giving those presentations about change labs. And I've accepted that. And um, our community manager, Marsha Gray-Eyes, now does all of that for the team, and she's great at it. And um, 
And as for me, I'm, I'm starting to think like, well, well, what is my strength? Like, yes, I'm Navajo, but I'm also half white and I can essentially be a good translator in the sense that I live in the modern world. I live in an urban area. I have fast internet. I can get on the phone with anybody within five minutes, whereas my colleagues back on the reservation, you know, they struggle with Wi-Fi. It's hard for them to find phone connectivity. So, so that's my power. That's my, that's my ad that I bring to the team is, um, is that connection to the modern world that is earnestly needed to do this work. Funders and potential partners or donors, they expect communication within a certain time period. You can't just sit on an email or wait to make a phone call until the next time you can get cell reception. So I've, I'm, my strength is just being that intermediary. Like I can answer an email within five minutes or I can give somebody a call back right away. And I know what res life is like, but I also know, you know, off res expectations. And um, that sounds kind of boring, but <laughs> I think it's actually really critical to doing work on the res is to have, to at least have somebody that's off the res who can help you manage a lot of those communications and um, cultural barriers that you face when you're, when you're completely in the on-reservation bubble. Yeah, I love that. Um, so speaking of kind of cultural barriers, I'm curious, what are any common misperceptions that people have about the Native community? Oh, wow. Where to start? <laughs> and the thing, too, is, is that um, I feel like a, a lot of them are true, and that bothers me. But um, I, I feel like most of the people I meet have never met a Native person <laughs> And I don't know if I'm the best introduction for them, but um, my husband, for example, I think I was the first Native person that he met. So he had all these questions. And I remember his, my mother-in-law thought that, or before she met me, she had all of these images in her head of what I would be like as, as because um, I think that's all my husband initially told her is that she's from the Navajo Nation or she's Navajo. And so she thought, I, I don't know, all these I'm sure negative things. She was really worried about that. She thought it meant he was going to end up back on the reservation and they would never see him again, almost like a cult mm. thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that was just her. I don't, I've never met anybody else who feels that way. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of the stereotypes that people think about when they think of native people, you know, spiritualism and, and poverty, that is certainly alive and well on Navajo. I think a lot of people too think about alcoholism and addiction, which also has its place on Navajo. But the thing I think that, um, that I try and focus on is, or what I don't think is portrayed nearly enough in media is all of the positive aspects of native communities. There's such a, a closeness, um, and kinship because everything is, is dictated by your clan and which clans you're part of. So not only is your family, you know, your, your, your immediate family, like your mother and your father, your sisters, your uncles, your cousins, and your second cousins, because families are quite huge on the res, but then you also have your clan cousins, your clan sisters, your clan grandmothers and grandfathers. Um, so it, 
by just going home and saying, you know, I'm the Tadni clan, I suddenly, my, my family suddenly gets much, much larger. Mm. And that actually helps break down barriers. If, um, if, if I meet somebody who's the same clan as me, you know, they, they suddenly have a better sense of who I am. There's trust. Um, and, and that's super helpful. And I, I think it's one thing that people don't always know is prevalent within at least Navajo, um, Navajo culture. But I've, I follow a lot of prominent native bloggers and posters on, on Twitter and Facebook. And one thing that I think always bothers me is that we're constantly reporting on the negative things around tribal communities, the injustices, and all of those things are true. And so I'm sure that feeds into the stereotypes. But at the same time, there's so many things to celebrate. There's so many, there's so many, there's so many, there's so many stories of resilience and strength within our communities that are overshadowed by all of the, the problems, both historical and the social challenges that emerge from those, from the historical problems. And um, that's kind of a narrative that I'm trying to not fall into through change labs is, is um, I just realized I talked about at the beginning of this podcast, I talked about like, ah, lack of electricity, lack of running water. Um, but it's easy to just see those problems. And I, th- I feel like our people have just seen problems their whole lives. And if all you can see are problems, it's hard to see the opportunity. So I really like, I want to promote more stories of positivity and, and, the people who've overcome those barriers or the people who don't even see the barriers in many ways and, and who just see how they can serve their communities and, and all of the, the positive aspects of um, being a proud native person, a proud um, native entrepreneur. Mm. It seems like that's what you're doing with change labs, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're trying to do is, is, just try and see things as opportunities. All of the problems that we have on the res are opportunities for entrepreneurs to come in and, and make that change. Mm, love it. Um, so kind of looking back on this crazy journey you've been on so far, I'm curious, uh, what are the top two to three pieces of advice you have for other business leaders? Oh, wow. Uh, let's see. Perseverance and persistence, I think, are necessary <laughs> for anybody <laughs> because there's so many, there's so much ebb and flow, both emotionally as well as um, physically, that has definitely gave me my first gray hairs. I feel like a business starting or having, creating a business is, is harder than children and, <laughs> or... Um, <laughs> It's a real stress test. Let's put it that way. It's a stress test. Um, the second one would be, or at least for me, was <laughs> actually going back to what we're doing now with Change Labs. Once I built my peer community, um, the first time I created a business, which was Catapult Design, even though I was in Silicon Valley, I felt very alone in what I was trying to do. I wouldn't say that I was scared because I was so happy to be doing what I was doing and I had no baseline either. So I was, I was going into everything blind, which I'm really glad in retrospect that I was. But after a point, I did start to feel kind of lonely and I, and I 
was worried about whether I was doing things the right way. So it wasn't until I started building a peer community of other people that were doing things similar to what I was doing and were in the same stage of the journey that I was in that I really felt like safe in what I was doing and stopped questioning whether or not I was doing things in the right way. And, um, that's why, that's why at Change Labs, our, our number one goal is to build community because I think a lot of people, especially given the rural nature of the reservation, really do feel like they're alone in what they're trying to do. Couple that with the stigma and the, the language barriers and the cultural barriers, it, it can be very isolating. So I think finding your community, finding your peers is really important. Love it. Um... So for you as an entrepreneur, what is the most important thing in your life right now? Oh, it's definitely my stability, which is my family. I was just out on a walk with my dog and I was thinking about, I don't know what I was, what got me to this, but my daughter's three and I was, I'm, for whatever reason, I'm starting to worry about her teenage years, even though that's still a long <laughs> ways away. And I was like, oh my God, she's going to have boyfriends. People are going to break her heart. And I was, it just, I, I, when I go on walks, I start thinking about all these random things, which is like, I, which is why I love to go on walks. I feel like it's when I have my best ideas. But, um, I was thinking about how I was only able to take risks at an early stage in my life because I had stability through family and not just my husband, but my parents and my, my sister. But actually I do give a lot of credit to my husband. He and I met when I was in in college, my senior year. And we had a very stable relationship a long time before we were married. But I feel like having that rock through family and through relationships and through my community of peers was what, even though I didn't have any money when I first created Catapult, um, just the fact that you have people to lean on, like my friends bought me lunch. (laughs) One of my closest friends lent me some clothes for one of my first business meetings with a client. Um, That meant more to me than not, you know, having a salary for two to three years or something like that. Just knowing that there's a, there's like that, you know, that trust fall game. (laughs) There's all these people there with their hands holding you up to make sure that you don't crash to the ground. Love it. Um, Final question. Uh, What is giving you hope for the future? Oh, wow. It's definitely all the entrepreneurs in our business incubator. It's just amazing to see how much they grow and their dedication and to hear their stories of why they do what they do. I mean, nobody does this for money. Everyone's doing this because they want to see a better reservation. They want to create a better future for their kids. They want to solve a problem in their community. And I couldn't ask for anything better in terms of people to work with and people to support. And I just feel so lucky that I get to do it all day long. Like it's my job to support them and lift them up. And I can't think of a better community to serve. A huge thanks this week goes out to Heather Fleming and the whole team over at Change Labs, as well as our incredible production team at StoryPop Media and the whole team at Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show and be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A StoryPop Media production.